Let us pray. Father God, soon we're going to go across the way and have a feast, have a meal, to partake in a variety of foods and offering. And yet, Lord, will the better feast this morning happen here, happen before your word. May we partake of your word in faith. May we hear that which your word this morning has for us. And may we place ever greater confidence upon it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Few weeks have ever gone by in ministry where I haven't had to had a conversation with someone about getting older, about mortality, about death itself. It's I really can't remember the last time I had a week with pastorally with such a reality. Even this week, a friend of ours from a former church. She called, and we were talking to her uh, on speaker through the, uh, the car phone or whatever that's called these days. And she's soon approaching her 65th birthday. And we are very close friends with her. And so I, I wanted to give her, you know, a pastoral word of encouragement to this fellow sister in Christ and so I, I jokingly said, yeah, I know from pastoral ministry, the 60s are hard. The 70s will be even harder. And then sometime in the 80s, usually people move on about the matter of age and just kind of, all right, it is what it is. And so good news, cheer up. In 20 years, this will be a lot worse. I mean, a lot better than it is now. And there's a reality with death. There's a reality with the end that we just, we kind of have to learn. And that the reality of that age creeping up, we, we learn that we don't necessarily usually know it in our youth, but as the world and the possibilities seem less broad and the road begins to narrow, we come under the understanding of the fact that some, at some point we're going to have to cross that bridge. We're going to have to walk from this life into the next. And it's a difficult thing and it's a hard thing for a great many. And yet in this passage, in the finality of Jacob's life, in, in the end of his life, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, there is something beautiful here for us to seize upon at the end of the book of Genesis. You know, people in response to not wanting to think about death, we have come up with all kinds of coping mechanisms. Some ignore it. Some stay away from it. Some become health-focused. And very popular in our day is to become completely risk-adverse. It's really one of the struggles of our age. I, I think it will be a pastoral reality for the next several decades. We have become very risk-adverse in a way that our forefathers and the forebearers, that they were not necessarily in the same way. 
Ten may have been wrongly convinced themselves that death is natural. So we shouldn't see death as wrong. By the way, death is not natural. God didn't originally create us to die. We actually created death all on our own. And at the end of the day, we all have that flashing light on the dashboard of our thoughts that warns us that while we were designed originally for eternity, that one day, sooner than the last, we will be made to face that moment of death. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, there are a couple surprising things talked about when it comes to the matter of death. It first says, for God's people, that the day of our death is even better than the day of our birth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even better for you than the hour you were first born into this world will be the hour that God appoints you to die? If you believe that is true today, why do you believe that is true? If you find that hard to believe, why do you find it hard to believe God's word this morning? And in Ecclesiastes 7.2, we also read how it is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting, where this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. To put it in modern terms, God's word is saying, it is better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. If you are a believer in the Lord, it is better for you to go to a funeral than it is for you to go to a party. Do you believe that this morning? If you believe it, why do you believe it? If you don't believe it, why don't you believe it? Why don't you believe God's Word? We need to ask ourselves these questions. More on them in a little while. But here we are in Genesis 49, and we've been with Jacob and his sons since March. And he was without a doubt an individual whom in the story of his life was a whirlwind of highs and lows, joys and sadness, blessing and curses. There are actually four moments previously in the narrative, previously in the text, where Jacob actually is terrified at the thought of death. In light of his struggle with Esau, in light of his struggle with his father-in-law Laban, in light of the, what his sons Levi and Simeon did, in light of what he believed happened to Joseph, he believed it was the end for him at that moment. He believed that it, there was nothing to else for him. He was going to die. And yet God sustained him, and God preserved him. And there's something to learn from that. There's something to learn from the fact that in one sense, Jacob already in the text has been shown four previous times to be, in one sense, the boy who cried wolf. And yet, now is the time. Now is the moment. And yet at this moment, Jacob has matured. Jacob is ready. Jacob is at peace 
to walk that final bridge. The vast majority of deaths I've been made to witness in pastoral ministry for the faithful Christian have had this common thread. Often at first there is great worry and despair. And then towards the very end, and sometimes this ease for the individuals, it can be jarring to those made witness, those left who will remain. But there is this sense of gentle Eve so often comes upon the individual who has relied faithfully upon the Lord. And Jacob, in our passage today, is embracing that reality. He is going to meet to borrow imagery that he shared with Judah that we covered last week. He is going to meet the Lion of Heaven himself, in whose words Jacob shared with his sons. He knows who awaits him on that bridge, and he knows yet that his Lord is faithful and true. And so from verses 29 to 32, we have Jacob make both first a final statement and then a final command. We're going to look at the command first. The command was a simple one. One that he already had Joseph swear he would honor twice. Basically, bury me in the family tomb. This is a family tomb that in our own day is located most likely in Hebron. Jews and Muslims love to fight over this tomb. It's located within the West Bank, due south of Jerusalem. It is the only land purchased by any of the patriarchs. Abraham bought it, and he bought it at first to bury his wife, Sarah. And then, of course, Abraham was put into that tomb. And eventually, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, was put into the tomb. And then, not Rachel, but Leah, was put into that tomb. And Jacob demanded he be buried there as well. Which is remarkable. And it's remarkable to think about because there is another tomb that Jews and Muslims still fight over to this day. And it is the tomb of Rachel. And that is found in Bethlehem. And if you know Jacob's story, you know his greatest love of life was Rachel. He loved Rachel. He loved her more than anything. The woman in whom he labored 14 years to have as his own. Through a great amount of suffering and injustice in one sense in his own right that he was made to endure. And yet at the end of his life, he did not want to be buried with Rachel. He wanted to be buried in the place that had been set aside for the patriarchs, a place of promise, a place where just the sense of trusting in God's promises was more poignant. That tells us something. His final command was basically put me where God has promised to do something remarkable, where I can remember that God is going to honor his word. But then let's go back. Let's look at that first statement of that verse. I am to be gathered to my people. Now, sometimes there's a line in Scripture, 
and the line can be read in a variety of ways. And you don't really know how it was said, how it was read. Moses did not write this line with such confusion. He wants us to know exactly how Jacob uttered this line. For a technical term, it is an imperative that is a participle that is in the immediate kind of imperative sense. To, to make that far easier to understand, what Jacob is saying is, I'm now going to be gathered to my people. I'm going to be gathered to my people right now. And so remember where to bury me. I'm leaving you right now. Think of this book of Genesis. This is a book that begins in tragedy, the tragedy of death entering into the world. And that can be overwhelming. Death can be overwhelming. The tragedy of death itself can be overwhelming. And yet, here at the end of this book, in the story of Jacob, which has, had taken up, has been taken up since chapter 25, half the book really deals with Jacob and his life and his sons after him. And he is dying. And it seems hopeless. And it doesn't seem to have any good news at all. And yet, here it is. Here is this statement. I am going right now to be gathered to my people. Jacob is seen across that bridge from mortality and immortality, from perishable into imperishable. And he says, I see the other side. I see the other reality. And it's my, my, my people, my forefathers are there. Thought of Bruce. Thought of your husband. And his near-death experience that happened. When I met him, he was a jerk. Didn't want to talk about God. God gave him a near-death experience. He still can be jerkish at times, but now he loves the Lord, and so he's God's jerk. <laughs> but did your husband not see those who had gone on before him? That's what Jacob sees. That's what Jacob sees. When we have a hold of that, when we recognize that this is, the, this is how the end of the first book of the Bible, the book of the Bible called Beginnings, wants to end, with giving us that hope to peer into that mortal plane and to immortality and to say, there is something there. There is life beyond when the soul separates from the body. <laughs> What a glorious gift this is. What a wonderful truth that we have to hold on to today. So there, in Genesis 49, 29, Jacob sees across that final bridge of mortality, and he sees what's before him in faith. And he says, on the other side of that bridge, I see my family who has gone before me, and so I go. And so I go. Jacob can see what is about to come. And upon seeing his imminent death, he sees the glorious truth of hope. And then 
we had the last verse of 33, a remarkable verse. In seeing what is to befall him, this Jacob who's been sitting at the side of his bed, he just simply puts his feet on his bed, sits down in comfort, and breathes out his last. And is that it? Is that all that Moses says in that verse? Is that how it ends with his death? No, Moses makes clear. He gives a little aside. He makes clear that at that moment, Jacob was gathered to his people. That Jacob walked across that mortal bridge unto the other side in peace. That the great tragedy of the beginning pages of Genesis is no longer a tragedy because we have a Lord that still will give us life beyond the grave. And so while Jews and Muslims still want to kill each other over who has control of Hebron, to own a land where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah were buried and turned into dust in their mortal bodies, why we Christians don't need to join in that struggle is because the main point of this story was not to tell us where the biblical patriarchs are buried in this world. No, rather, the thing worthy of holding on to in the death of the final patriarch is that life continues beyond the grave. That bridge, which most people are terrified to cross from this life into the next, that bridge will one day for us be a blessed opportunity if we cross it in faith and at rest in the promises and truth of God and his life-giving word. All of us know people on the other side of that mortal And this was left unsaid to my friend really earlier this week. The one sense of why it, it does in one sense get easier as we age to, to be okay with it if we are in faith in the Lord is because unlike our birth, referring back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, you know what, my birth, I didn't necessarily know all that was before me. I maybe had some innate natural understanding of the voice of my mother and my, my, maybe my father and my siblings, but I didn't have an understanding of what awaits me. So why can the moment of death be greater than the moment of birth according to God's Word? We know what's in store for us if we have faith in the Lord. And if you have found any other way to comfort yourself with the idea of death that is absence, the truth of God and His life-giving Word and the ransom that He paid through the sacrificial Son, Please, do not go across that bridge. Do not leave this mortal coil without having embraced the Lord, the giver of life. Do not do it. Please do not do it. The scariest thing that can befall anybody is the, for the Lord to say, you don't want me, fine. You will not have me for eternity. Embrace the one who offers you eternal life today. And so chapter 49 closes on a hopeful note. With Jacob surviving in the life to come, even though he died in this life, and now as Jacob is across that final bridge into the afterlife, 
Moving into Genesis 50, we now see those left behind in grief. And it's always okay in this mortal life to have grief at death, at the moment of death of our loved ones. Jesus, of course, shows this in Lazarus, but it is okay. Often, I, I just did a funeral where somebody, and it wasn't connected to the church, somebody got so caught up in their grief at the moment as they were recalling the love of this loved one who had loved them even in the hard times, the difficult times, the times where they struggled with the And they were just overwhelmed with emotion. They felt they had to stop. And ultimately, the Lord used that moment of, of their stopping. But it's okay to grieve. And I went up to the individual afterwards and we talked through that. At those left behind, we see first Joseph. Joseph is shown to fall upon his father's departed face first to kiss him, which was a reminder that God did honor his word, honor his promise to Jacob that he made back in Genesis 46, 4, that Joseph's face would be the last that he saw in this mortal life before he crossed from this life into the next. And then Joseph has his father embalmed. Now, when it comes to embalming, don't make too much of this. The Egyptians, even though they had religious aspects that they would often do with an embalming, that would not have been the reality for Jacob's embalming. The sons would have wanted it, and the, the Egyptian culture wouldn't have allowed it for a non-Egyptian. But the embalming here of Jacob is merely a practical matter. They're going to have to carry his body back all the way to Canaan. And it took 40 days for the Egyptians to embalm the body. And we discover that he's essentially Egypt had 70 days of mourning for the life of Jacob. We actually know through the writings of antiquity, a pharaoh of Egypt would get 72 days. And so Jacob's being honored 70 days is quite remarkable. It definitely had to have been commanded by the Pharaoh, but it shows that he gets a king-like honor. In one sense, what's going on here is a little bit like after a national tragedy like the one that happened 21 years ago. Our president will declare a national time of mourning where the flags are at half-mass for 30 days. And so that's what is happening here. And then, then there is this kind of peculiar change in the narrative. We haven't really seen the relationship of Joseph and the Pharaoh, whether it be the same Pharaoh or a new Pharaoh, in the last 17 years of time. But Joseph sends an intermediary to Pharaoh to request permission to bury his father in the land of Canaan. And, we, and a lot of people like to ask, why does he not just go to Pharaoh face to face? It, it could be something as simple as somebody who has an encounter with a dead body likely could not go before the Pharaoh. But I also think there might be elements and foreshadowings and of a greater exodus to come and the exodus story to come where ultimately... The people will 
have to leave Egypt in a way different than this manner of leaving. Let me ex further explain. I tend to think Moses in this text is already hinting at things soon to come for the family of Israel. So, but ultimately, Pharaoh says to Joseph he can go after Joseph vows that he will return to Egypt. And then in verses 7 through 9, as Joseph goes to bury his father, we see three major groups. Come, go. In verse 8, we see the family went. The family, the immediate family of Israel went. In verse 7, we see that servants and, and in one sense, royal dignitaries of Pharaoh, they also go. But that last verse, verse 9, talks about how the chariots and the horsemen, the armies of Egypt in one sense, are following them into Canaan. Now, most likely it is that Pharaoh just wanted them to be protected. He wanted them to be respected and preserved and honored and treasured. It doesn't have to mean that basically maybe Pharaoh wanted to make sure Joseph returned. But still, this was written by Moses, and Moses is noting that a military force accompanied the family of Israel, and soon that great war machine of Egypt, within several generations, it will eventually become one that will follow this same family of Israel into Canaan, but they won't be following them out of honor. They'll be following them in desire to put them back into bondage. And so we should note that. An army just as easily used in order to honor the family of God can also, sadly, in the course of time, just as easily be turned against the family of God. World history is full of such tales, especially in the last 120 years of history. At the behest of wicked leadership, forces once for good have become forces of bondage and oppression. And then Moses points out that they didn't take the most direct route into Canaan. The quickest route would have been going through the south. They actually take the longer road. They actually approach from the east over to the Jordan. This is the same way the descendants of Israel will eventually travel under first Moses and then Joshua into the promised land. And when the family of Jacob reached Canaan as Genesis comes to a close, they begin to mourn and weep so bitterly that the locals, seeing this group that they believe is all Egyptians, renamed the place in order to remember their lament. If you wonder why there was so much lament over Jacob's, the matter of Jacob's death, remember that when it came to the matter of peace amongst these brothers, amongst this family, that they had thrown in so much of the years of their life away in wickedness and evil and scheming and divisiveness against one another and rivalry. Remember that it was actually the love of their father, Jacob, that ultimately helped bring this family back together into reconciliation. And on top of this, for the entire family of Israel, remember that this is the end of an era. For them, for this family, it was first their great-grandfather and then their gra and grandmother. It was then their grandfather and grandmother, and then it was their 
father and mother who helped usher in and help share the remarkable story of who they were in the Lord. Who they were as a people. And even as Jacob's final words of prophecy come to a close, he had made clear that a, a new horizon, a new dawn was a part of them where they less are seen as one collective family under the patriarchs, but as different tribes with different personalities, separate and distinct, unique qualities. And it is here where I want to close. Acknowledging this congregation, this gathering of people, that we also have an eclectic variety, eclectic variety of individuals. God has brought us out here to be gathered in Waxhaw, Pennsylvania this morning. Today, of course, a matter of a short amount of time now, we will go and celebrate the 145th oyster picnic of Old Goshenop and Reformed Church which, as we can see from the cover of our bulletin, has had in its own history an eclectic group of individuals. Do you know who was the first president at the first oyster picnic? For the first oyster picnic? Who was the president at the time of the first oyster picnic? Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant. Children, do you know who was the president when Old Gonshop was founded? We're celebrating 290. This year, do you know who the first the president was at the time? Trick question. There was no president at the time. We were ruled by King George II, who apparently was the last British monarch to actually charge the field of battle with cavalry and such. And yet, why has God given us such a place of land to continue being good stewards of? Is it so we can be like the Jews and the Muslims fighting over the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron? I don't think so. You know, there's an expression, we become what we worship, and when we fight over the dirt of the world, we miss something that Jacob's trying to teach us in his death here, in this passage. Now, this place is to be a place centered upon the love of the Father. The love of the Father who has reached into history, has created a bridge of salvation for us into the life that comes through the better Son of Israel, through our Lord Jesus Christ, and whom assures us that He will never forsake us, He will never leave us, He will never abandon us, and declares in His Word that the day of our death will be better than even the day of our birth. And when we make that our focus, the things that would try to divide us and separate us, they begin to melt away and we become a a faithful community of worship and prayer and love in the Lord. Unashamed of the truth of the gospel, for it is sweet honey to those who are perishing in the world. Even the cemetery disputes or the disputes about events and all these things, they can melt away and they don't need to be as important to us because we have seen and glimpsed into the beyond. And in the beyond, there is something beautiful there for us to behold. 
And what is there is the nail-pierced hands of our risen Lord. Our Lord who in his life declared, I go to prepare a place for you before he was stricken upon the cross and then later on declared in the empty grave. He didn't want us to fight over a grave. That's why he left it empty. He left an empty grave that declared, I have made a way for you. I have provided a way for you to be gathered amongst your people. And so let us be, let that be our hope. Let that continue to be what dots this property. There is throughout the Northeast and throughout this country so many churches that have failed to prioritize the right kinds of things. Let us not forget the priority of God's Word and God's grace and the love of the Father that gives us a hope everlasting. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that through your word this morning, you have given us a glimpse of what is to come. And so I pray that for all of us, upon that hour, those of us in faith, we can be ready, like Jacob was, to die well, to die seeing the promised land that is to come. We thank you for the gift of life everlasting. And now we take a moment to quietly and privately confess those times and those moments and those sins that we struggle with when we do not embrace the fullness of your salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.